0: Hello, welcome to Interdependent Study, our podcast where we engage in the learning and unlearning work for social justice and collective liberation. I'm Aaron. And I'm Damien. Thank you so much for joining us today. For those new to our podcast, Interdependent Study is meant to be a space and community for folks who believe in and want to do the work of social justice. Each week, we'll bring something new to the table and
1: discuss our thoughts and feelings about it through the lenses of who we are and where we can go for a more just
0: society. We want interdependent study to be a space where we're always learning with one another. Uh, Damien, you're up this week after our little break. Uh, so what are you bringing to the table today? Yeah, well, we are back. Uh, and that's so exciting.
1: We're, we're we're really excited to be back here at the table and and recording our 22nd mm-hmm. episode of Absolutely. Interdependent Study. That's awesome. So, you know, first of all, thank you so much to everyone listening. And uh, for all the folks who have been joining us week in and week out, we mm-hmm. really appreciate it. Um, so today I've brought a book called The End of Policing by Alex Vitale to the table. Uh, and Mm -hmm. this book has been on our list for a while and we've mentioned it a few times here on the podcast. And so I'm glad we finally got around to reading it and, uh, uh, I'm excited for us to talk about it today. And so as a reminder about what this book is all about, um, I'm going to share the direct quote from the publisher's website again, because I think it's just pretty comprehensive Mm -hmm. um it says this book attempts to spark public discussion by revealing the tainted origins of modern policing as a tool of social control it shows how the expansion of police authority is inconsistent with community empowerment social justice even public safety drawing on groundbreaking research from across the world and covering virtually every area in the increasingly broad range of police work alex vitali demonstrates how law enforcement has come to exacerbate the very problems it is supposed to solve. Mm. Um, and so I think, you know, this book really drills down and, and focuses on policing and law enforcement and uh, the criminal punishment system. I'm just going to continue to call it the criminal punishment system because I I love that, um, yeah, right?
0: Yeah. Let's keep that going. Learn that from... Um Cobb, right? That's right,
1: yeah. uh, and and on top of that, also sort of the the problems with those institutions, yeah. right? And and it does so in such a thorough way, right? Yes. Um, so there are ten chapters in this book, and those chapters range from talking about sort of policing in general to police reform uh, to the wars on drugs, gangs, and sex work in this country. Um, to how certain populations, like marginalized folks and communities, people with mental illnesses, immigrants, uh, and and the, the homeless are policed, um, and really so much more. Um, and so, uh, again, I'm really excited for us to talk about this book today. So uh, where do you want
0: to begin, Aaron? Um yeah, I think thorough is a really great word for it. Yeah. There's a lot here. Um, and I really learned a lot from the deep history that, that Alex Vitali goes into in, yeah. in the book. Um, so we dug into the history of the origins of policing from sort of London um, to then it got kind of imported to Boston. Yep. And then to New York City and then into sort of more rural areas like uh, in the South and, and uh, different places across the country um, to now basically everywhere. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he sets up early on that reforms for the police are going to be really difficult because, you know, he highlights that policing was established as a form of social social control, yeah, um, which was mentioned in that in that quote from the publisher. Um, so yeah, each each chapter takes time to s- explore um, these different um, topics you just mentioned and outlines, I think, a lot of realities for the conditions, yeah, um, in which the police are policing. Um, people who might fit into that kind of group yes. um, of people, um, whether it's you know homeless people or sex workers or kids in school in the school to prison pipeline. Um, so, um, he, like I really appreciate that the way that the chapters are done because he outlines those conditions. He talks about some of the the things that I think are in the kind of public um, realm of knowledge and discussion mm-hmm. around different aspects of policing with these different uh, populations and then drills down into the like reforms that are typically talked about with people. Um, And so he lists those common reforms that are considered and shows how those wouldn't change much about the reality of those situations. Um, He explores a lot about how abuses of power have almost always been at play in policing throughout history, um, whether that's back in the early days in England um, or with J Edgar Hoover and the FBI through to today. um, And, you know, him talking about the kind of warrior mentality that policing has, um, that yeah. police a- adopt when they're interacting with the public. And so it's more about, um, you know, being a soldier in battle than the sort of public guardian of public safety. And helper. Right. 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 Yeah. Um, and so, I, you know, there's a lot <laughs> to cover here today. So I'm, I'm excited to see kind of where a conversation goes. I think as usual, we're only going to, you know, touch on a, a few things um, yeah. like there's so many highlights in this book like things that i highlighted right is what i mean by highlights (laughs) um that it you know even like thinking about what i'm going to be able to say in a 40 45 ish minute episode is you know there's it's daunting, right? Yeah.
1: yeah. I mean, I, yeah, I agree. I took, uh, this is probably the most amount of pages of, of highlights and notes that I took yeah. um, from any of the media we've had on the table. And I appreciate what you sort of said around how he sets up this these chapters because mm-hmm. they're, he sets them up the same way for each chapter, but he goes into so much depth and provides so many yeah. examples and so much history and context. And I think, you know, um, you talked about some um anecdotes about mm-hmm. how the police are policing in these various contexts. And I think there's lots in there that, um, you know, are common knowledge, right. And yeah. there are things we see, but there's also, I learned so much in this book, yeah, um, in, in every single chapter. Um, and so I, I very much so appreciate, uh, and appreciated this book and, and what he did and, and, uh, yeah, there's certainly lots for us to talk about, so we should get into it. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that I think actually sold me right, away about this book was how Alex starts the book in the very first chapter talking about the magnitude and 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 the consequences of police brutality and corruption and especially how uh, that disproportionately has affected uh, Black folks and and folks of color in this country, right? Um, you know, part of what he does is share some stats around the numbers of deaths of Black people by police in this country, and you know, some of these these years are are, are a bit ago, but you know, something like there were stats around how there were eleven hundred deaths in twenty fourteen, mm-hmm. just under a thousand in twenty fifteen, um, and just over a thousand in twenty sixteen, um, and also. How how black teens, uh, teenagers are 21 times more likely than white teenagers to be killed by the police. Right. Um, you know, and he also talked about, you know, and there were examples of this through the book about, you know, how black folks and Latinx folks are overwhelmingly the targets of low level police interactions. Right. And that's the bulk of what a lot of policing is and what, what they do. Right. So, you know, writing traffic and issuing traffic tickets and, and, and searches and just really also, you know, to sort of the extreme, this outright brutality. Um, and so I, I think it's really difficult um, to read those stats and to hear about the types of police brutality that we see over and over again in this country. And and again, as I just mentioned, like there are so many more stats and so many examples of all of this throughout the book and in each chapter and in the different sort of context in which we're talking about policing, you know. And it's hard to sort of read that and, and take that in and comprehend it and really not be compelled by, you know, the push for abolition right as it yeah. relates to policing and law enforcement right and mm-hmm. and some of the conversations that we've had on this on this show you know and i think that's especially the case for me when i think about what alex refers to when he talks about when he talks about this mindset that exists in policing and law enforcement in our country right you know and what that has meant for The treatment of marginalized folks. Um, I think one of the most powerful quotes that um, sort of relates to this, uh, but then also pushes us to reimagine public safety, which is something we've also talked about here on the show, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and to sort of, you know, critically reimagine the conditions of people in our society um, is he says this this form of policing is based on a mindset that people of color commit more crime and therefore must be subjected to harsh or police, harsher police tactics. Police argue that residents in high crime communities often demand police action. What is left out of that, what is left out of these conversations, um, oh gosh, I just lost my notes. Uh, What is left out of these conversations is that these communities also asked for better schools, parks, libraries, and jobs. Uh, But these services are rarely provided. They lack the political power to obtain real services and support to make their communities safer and healthier. The reality is that middle class and wealthy white communities would put a stop to the constant harassment and humiliation meted out by police uh, in communities of color, no matter the crime rate. You know, and I, I, you know, I was sort of compelled by that. And sort of, again, it speaks to this notion that we've, 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 you know, I think discussed in depth on this show, um, uh, about what public safety is and who police are out here to serve. And, you know, I think, again, there's so much uh, connection to the concepts of, again, abolition and, and again, reimagining public safety and, and, and thinking about the conditions for all of us in this country um, that hopefully are, uh, that,
0: that are needed, I think, to get us to a place where we have justice and, and liberation for all of us. Yeah, I think that's so important. I think that as I think about this book a little bit more, Um, I think about it in connection to some of the other stuff we've read, right? Particularly, I think, you know, most recently we do this till we free us by Maryam Kaba. This feels like a book that um, is like set up. It's it's in the sort of constellation of of ideas around what abolition can look like. And this is in that section of that constellation that's establishing why we need to think about what abolition is, right? Like, because I don't think throughout the book, and correct me if I'm wrong, like there aren't these um, sort of visionary pieces of this is what this could look like in the future. Right. This is about what's the history. What are the conditions that we're living in? Um, you know, what are the elements of policing that's not working? What are the reforms people are talking about and how is that going to work or not work? Right. And so it's like um, it, this is like the um, kind of preamble. Yes. to So how do we imagine what um, public safety looks like? After we we, um, you know, get rid of the police, if if we are on that movement, um, if we are moving toward that kind of outcome. uh, Yeah, this is outlining all of the problems and all all of the issues, all the concerns. And, you know, you talked about the statistics and how many people are being killed by police every every year um, and the ways that that's happening in different forms of policing. Like is outlined throughout this book. Yeah. um No, that's right. spot on, right? Yeah. I don't, because I even think there. I don't know that I
1: saw even saw the word abolition a lot throughout the book. Yeah. At all. I think so. Yeah. Um, so right, I think it's in the same constellation, and I think it's a sort of an appetizer, right, or a precursor um, to that work. But it sets, it gives us all of the all of the pieces. Yeah. Right. Um, right. And so I think in a lot of ways, as I was sort of reading this book and thinking about, um, you know, what I was taking from it because I think I am embracing, uh, you know, this abolitionist mindset, right? Like I was sort of, you know, using it as sort of my evidence for, you know, and my rationale for why it is, but you're absolutely spot on there.
0: Yeah. And I, so, um, you know, kind of jumping back to what you're talking about in terms of, um, you know, we have this mindset that we just kind of accept, what the police are doing. I think there are lots of like sort of cultural aspects of that, right? Where we we accept it. We assume that police are um, solving the problems that we think that they are, right? Um, And, um, you know, I think this book outlines how that's not the case. Um, And there's this one piece at the beginning of chapter two that I think really connects to kind of what you're just saying, um, you know, a little bit ago, uh, where he's talking about reforms and how reforms, specifically, kind of ideas around more training, miss the point about critically considering whether the police are the appropriate agency or entity to solve those problems, yeah. right? And I think I'd add to that and ask whether the problems that we're asking the police to solve are actually the problems. Mm. Like, is that is that problem or concern that we have as a community the actual problem or concern that we need to address, or is that a symptom of something? Yes, right if we're only addressing the symptoms and not the root cause, then we're missing the point entirely. Right. And I think I've made this metaphor before, but if I have chronic headaches and all I'm doing to take care of that is take, you know, a pain reliever every day, but the same headache is coming back every day. I'm not getting to the root cause. I'm, you know, sort of ameliorating my condition every day and the symptoms. Um, so I can be functional, but it's not actually getting to whatever's causing me to have a, a headache every day. Yeah. Um, So absolutely. Well, and I think we've had this
1: conversation before too, about how that takes a lot of, um imagination mm-hmm. right uh and a lot of work to th- to to think about what that is right we're not getting to uh the root causes in a lot of cases right. here and right police are uh only are called to f- to fight these symptoms right and to address these symptoms um so i think that's an incredible point um for sure and i think that that's something that you know alex gives us plenty of examples of mm-hmm. um throughout this book so yeah that's that's great you know i I, um, I have to say that I learned so much from this book, which is awesome. I think that's, you know, the point of a lot of books like this. Um, and I think some of my greatest learning actually came from, you just mentioned chapter two. And I think that was, that was where some of the greatest learning I had came from. That chapter was called the police are not here to protect you. Mm -hmm. And so much of that chapter focused on the history of policing in this country. And, you know, I think while I thought I knew a lot about that history, um, you know, Alex presented so much of it that I learned for the first time. Um, Mm -hmm. you know, there was obviously a lot presented about the role that slavery and the Jim Crow era and other critical moments in our country's history played in policing and, and sort of distancing the conditions of white folks and black folks and, 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 other marginalized communities in our country. Um, and you know, so, so much of that I was familiar with, um, but Alex also shared, you know, so many examples on like the evolution of policing in individual states like Pennsylvania and California and Texas uh, that I, I, again, I learned for the first time. Um, you know, I went to college in, in Pennsylvania, so uh, I, I was really fascinated by sort of learning about how Pennsylvania was home to. Um, the coal and iron police force um, that was simply used to suppress the workers movement that was happening um, in the state, you know, and one of the most atrocious things that, you know, I read about in this chapter was how the coal and iron police uh, were part of what was called the Latimer massacre in 1897 um, that ultimately killed 19 unarmed miners. uh, That's M I N E R S uh, and, and injured Thirty-two, I believe other folks. Right. Right. Um, and how then despite that brutality, uh, just a few years later, right. The Pennsylvania state police force, uh, was born out of that same sort of, uh, coal and iron police force, um, Mm -hmm. you know, and established in 1905, um, which is just nonsense. Um, and you know another thing I learned in that chapter was uh, I had never heard of uh, this man named August Vollmer, who was a 20th century police leader, and and he was the eventual chief of police uh, in Berkeley, California. Um, and all of this work I learned about all this work he did to sort of pioneer um, things like the use of radio patrol cars and fingerprinting and sort of other techniques in policing that you know, have sort of become standard practice um, and standard operating procedures for them. Um, And so, you know, all that to say, like, there was just so much history like that that was presented in this book that was new to me. But I think it also helped illuminate um, more about Sort of how and why there's this deep-seated power uh, that the police and law enforcement have in this country, right? You know, as you think about, as I think about, again, you know, I just I just mentioned Pennsylvania and, and California, but there were you know lots of other examples across the country uh, that Alex presents here, um, and so that was sort of one piece of it for me. You know, Alex, of course, also shares, you know, more history and example of how examples of how the police have you know, consistently been used as this suppression force for all types of movements in this country. And we see that even up to, you know, present day, right? Um, you know, he also talks about how slavery and slave patrols played and the role that those uh, played in the forming of of modern day policing, you know, and what, and what it does to control folks and, and just so much more. And so I think chapter two, for me, there was just so much informative and compelling content there. Uh, and I think it's a really great chapter if you, if you don't have a lot of time or, you know, you want to sort of get a snippet of some information here, you know, chapter two is a great place to go. If you want to learn more about sort of the the history of policing in this country and the impact of that history as well.
0: Yeah. I think, uh, I think chapter two has the most highlights for me in my Uh. copy of the book too. Um, I think one of the things about chapter two that I was picking up on, um, I think is reflected in future parts of the book is how much colonization played a role in mm-hmm. how we developed policing. Yeah. Um, so you think about like the police starting in England, and they were developed and kind of professionalized around suppressing rural communities and labor yeah. movements, and um, uh, you know other pieces as England industrialized. Um, and then this August Vollmer character was in the Philippines mm-hmm. and involved in the control and suppression of people there. Um, in our colonization efforts in the Philippines as the United States. And he brought back those ideas and, and techniques to develop policing in, in, um, in the U.S., I think in yep. Pennsylvania first and then um, in Berkeley, California later on. Right. Um, so, you know, so much of this history is rooted in this kind of cultural colonization that lays down and, and you know, ha- hammers down on these upper class values to working people, yeah, right, and enforces those upper class values to working people, or enforces Western values on indigenous populations in, like, for instance, the Philippines, yeah, um, or Hawaii, or you know, wherever, wherever else our imperialism, you know, wherever else we made our way with our imperialism uh, as a country, and then those ideas were then used to develop mo- so called modern policing that continue to enforce enforce elitist values on poor black brown. And indigenous people, um, you know, with all kinds of ideas around what's what's correct in a neighborhood and what's the correct kind of behavior Mm -hmm. to participate in. And um, you know, this broken windows theory of policing that he talks about and unpacks a lot that is um I think we've talked about on the on the show before, um, but is about um, you know, if there's a broken window, that means that more crime is gonna happen. Yeah. So we need to make sure that we're taking care of all of the little things. Um, that lead to larger crime like loitering. So mm-hmm. leading to more crackdowns on something like loitering, um, which is, you know, if you're living in an apartment, loitering is where you hang out, right? Like it, <laughs> with your friends because you don't have a, a place to go, right? So loitering is thinking what about conditions yeah. is, yeah. right? Like I'm hanging out with my friends outside of Seven Eleven because that's the only sort of hangout space that we have where we can all get together and... and talk. Yeah. That's often just down the street from where
1: I live. Right. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Yeah. The, I think he, he, he brings up sort of the broken windows theory uh, almost in every single chapter, you know, um, because it is such a part of what, um, is a sort of central feature of modern day policing, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. How many times have we said there is a lot of content in this book? You know, I, I, I think it's really hard to to talk about everything in it and to do it justice here. But, you know, one of the, one of the chapters that I was really compelled about, um, you know, featured Alex's thoughts on the interactions between police and, uh, people with mental illness. Um, you know, I think it's easy for me as a black man to resonate with the notion of police brutality against folks who look like me. Mm -hmm. Um, But when I read about sort of the criminalization um, and treatment of people with mental illnesses, I think it really strengthened for me the the feelings that I have around how policing is so fundamentally flawed in our country. Right. you know, I think like he does in every chapter. You know, uh, Alex started it by sharing some stats. You know, and those included things like how the U.S. police kill hundreds of people with mental illnesses every year. Um, how it's estimated that one in every four police killings is of a person with a mental illness. Um, and then sort of broadening that to talk about a criminal punishment system, right? How fifteen percent of men and thirty percent of women who are jailed in this country have a serious mental illness. Um, and there's a lot in here, I think, too, about how the criminal punishment system and and the prison industrial complex, you know, treats folks who are suffering with mental illnesses as well, right? Like that, this isn't the the conditions or environments that are going to serve them well or help them be better, feel better, uh, get better, get well. Um, and and so that's a that's a huge part of this as well, right? And so you know, I think one of the The biggest points I wanted to highlight, I think, from from Alex was that, you know, the police are not well-equipped, if at all, to respond to folks experiencing mental health challenges, particularly in the moment, right? You know, um, one of the things he says is, and I'm quoting here, he says, "...it is not reasonable to expect a patrol officer to make a meaningful clinical assessment of patients in the field. While experience may help some officers identify certain more common behaviors, a nuanced assessment just isn't likely." And they still have significant consequences for how the officer approaches the interaction. Um, and then he goes on a little bit later in that chapter to say, Why should armed police officers oversee outreach to the chronic and homeless mental mentally ill? Using armed police is expensive and brings few benefits. Trained mental health and social services outreach workers are perfectly capable of handling this job. And unlike police teams, are more likely to be able to build long-term relationships and gain trust, an essential component of outreach to highly isolated individuals with complex mental health and substance abuse problems. The implied threat of coercive response that police posed such people further in pushed people, I'm sorry, uh, further into isolation, not into proper care. Um, You know, and I think that, again, just speaks to this, these recurring ideas of both reimagining public safety um, that I think. And of course, you know, the treatment of human beings and the dignity that human beings deserve, um, particularly when they're experiencing something like a mental health break, right. That I I think are, are just so important and, and, and the police just ain't it. Right.
0: Yeah. I think one of the things I think about too, is that the desire to control people with mental illness, I think runs throughout our society. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and, and so the way that police interact with people with mental illness is a direct reflection of that, right? Yes. Like they're a product of, those interactions are a product of the sort of um, stigma that is involved with mental illness. Um, That's a very good point. It's yeah. a, you know, it's a heightened, uh, violent response yes. a lot of the times, but it's, it's, a, it comes out of that, I think um, there's connected to it in some way. Um You know, he points out that so many examples, he points out a lot of examples of how the police have killed people with mental illnesses. And and you mentioned a few, um, but they were acting out for a variety of reasons and they didn't know how to respond Mm -hmm. uh, effectively, even with a lot of training. Um, And, you know, perhaps they were, you know, armed with a knife or with a screwdriver. um, But the actual like threat of that person was... um, minimal yeah and was then exacerbated and blown out of control by officers with a gun and a warrior mentality yeah um Mm. so yeah i think that's that's a big thing to think about particularly as we think about what public safety could be is like how do we rethink you know how we kind of serve people who are um mentally ill or who are homeless and and have you know a range of vulnerabilities in that way yeah um and and one of the things that he talks about in the chapter about homelessness is that there are several studies that say that it's cheaper to just give a homeless person a home, yes, um, you know, a sort of semi-permanent space, mm-hmm. than it is to let them continue to live on the streets and get arrested or go through a court system or go to a hospital bill like hospitals yep. and and have those bills ultimately covered by the taxpayer right um yeah and it was by thousands of dollars a Mm -hmm. year that it's cheaper per person yeah um so that that's also something that i think i don't think that a lot of people really understand is that like it's literally cheaper for us to give people an apartment somewhere that's furnished that they're not paying for than it is for them to live on the street Mm -hmm. because of how we Treat them or don't treat them right? yeah. and ignore them. I was reminded in, so, that, in that part of the book about
1: how we did a service project, if you recall, where we uh, helped furnish some apartments for mm-hmm. homeless veterans, right? And that some of the sort of education that we got that day was about how it is much cheaper for us and for right. the city, how we were doing the service in D.C., Um to provide these furnished apartments to these homeless veterans right. as opposed to having them out in the street. Right. And, and the, the cost of that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was, I was reminded of that, uh,
0: when I was reading that yeah. part of this book. So uh, that's absolutely the case. Yeah. Um, so I also want to talk about a couple, the two of the other chapters that, okay. um, that stuck out to me, um, you know, all, 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 a lot of it stuck out. But yeah. these two pieces I wanted to mention is um, because we're talking more about the border mm. currently, right? Yeah. Um, and um, so there's a chapter about border policing um, and a chapter about political policing. So I want to talk about those two things um, real briefly-ish. <laughs> um, so he talks about the history of policing the border and how it has evolved over time mm-hmm. um, and really talks about how the massive enforcement buildup that we have developed on the border through, um, you know, the, the development of ice, um, and different programs and and more checkpoints and and all that stuff has made the border more dangerous. Ah. So because of this increased presence, you know, people go further into the desert and further into dangerous sort of, um, physical conditions, conditions, areas, right? Like in the desert, um, to avoid confrontation or getting caught or whatever, and then they die in the heat of the desert. And so as many as 500 people per year die of dehydration exposure and heat. Uh, And then there are like, you know, humanitarian groups who will leave supplies out in the desert. And then there are law enforcement agencies and vigilantes who will go and destroy those, right? So if I leave a gallon jug of water out in the desert, you know, they might go by and either poison it or puncture it or do something to it to to just, and I don't think that he talked about that. That's just something that I've I've learned, uh, semi recently. Um, but another piece of this that I think is important to talk about and think about right now. Um, because these statistics are either at the, are from before the Trump administration. Yes. Um, and so these numbers are from president Obama's administration. Yeah. Um, but we have more than 5,000 kids in foster care whose parents have been deported without them. Wow. 5,000 kids in foster care whose parents have been deported without them. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it's important for us to think about, I was talking about colonization earlier. It's important for us to think about why people are coming here. Like why are they running to the U S what are they escaping from? What are they running from? Mm -hmm. Right. And sort of reframing what we think of as people taking advantage of this shining city on the Hill. Um, that also when you get close to it, you're like, mm. this, that's not so shiny. It sure isn't. Um, the varnish is wearing, um, because we do things like have 5,000 kids in foster care whose parents have been deported without them. Exactly. Um, and we send our vice president or current vice president down to Guatemala and tell people not to come. Damn. So, you know, um, despite the conditions there being maybe tangentially related to, uh, foreign policy of the United States itself. So, yeah. Um, so shifting a little bit to talking about how policing has always been political. Um, I think the opening chat, the opening quote from that chapter is the roots of political policing lie deep in the desire of kings and queens to maintain power in the face of the shifting allegiances and interests of nobles and foreign powers. Mm. So that history, I think, is reflected in the modern day for me as well. Absolutely. The police and throughout history the police have always protected the interests of the wealthy and the powerful, whether they're Kings or nobles or slaveholders or property owners or businesses or the mega rich. Right. Um, Even if you think about what's criminalized and what's not right, like people. And then he talks about this, the people who helped cause and create the 2008 housing financial crisis. crisis, Yeah. Who went to jail for that? Mm -hmm. Nobody. But if I, you know, if I steal something from down the street and get caught i'm probably going to get arrested right and you know the ultimate harm to society you know i stole ten dollars and whatever yeah and millions and billions of dollars right like you know disproportionate uh impact so how we also criminalize things is also based on this um and then he talks about um police infiltrating and have almost always infiltrated organizations to disrupt political activism of those organizations. Yes. Whether that's the Palmer raids, which singled out groups in the labor labor movement, I believe in the early 1920s mm-hmm. to co-intel pro with the FBI um, that, you know, ultimately murdered uh, Fred Hampton and the black Panthers, bl- the black Panther party in Chicago um, to local police departments, infiltrating occupy encampments and comparing those people in occupy to al-qaeda right Mm. um to more locally the maryland state police spying on local death penalty and peace activists for years and then classifying 53 people and 20 organizations as terrorists Mm. which if you review the things he talks about this there's no evidence of actual illegal activity in those records right yeah, yeah,
1: they, yeah, and there were a lot of examples of that. There were a lot of instances throughout the book where he would share something egregious, and egregious isn't even strong enough of a word here, like that that of action that police take where they have no
0: evidence to do right. so, right? right?
1: Which is just wild.
0: Yeah, um, and there. So in the border policing one, they talk about um, Senator Patrick Leahy was um, detained 125 miles away from the border. The the um, law is that within a hundred miles of the border, and that includes water, mm-hmm. yep. um, you can stop people and detain them, and their constitution constitutional rights can be suspended. You can demand like to see citizenship papers and stuff like that. Patrick Leahy, a senator, U.S. senator, was stopped um, 125 miles from the border and detained. Um, under the same kind of auspices of being within 125 miles and he said, well what under what authority are you, like stopping me and the the border patrol officer said held up a gun and said, this is my authority. this is all the authority I need um, yeah so hmm. when you think about why people are demanding that we abolish ice, it's stories like those because yeah. they have been a rogue agency and there's evidence of them being a rogue agency and not, actually being held accountable by anybody um, including Congress and ignoring congressional sort of demands or, or, um, you know, requirements or whatever. Um, So, you know, back to this political policing thing, this is, this is a historical pattern of law enforcement siding with the elite and powerful in an effort to suppress the actions of the poor working class, people of color and more. Right. Um, So, yeah. So I, for one, after that, rant would just like to take this moment to say hello to our maryland state police spy um yes we are talking about abolition absolutely right here i hope
1: you're hope you're taking something from this uh well you are because you're listening um yeah very very good point and and really sort of um you know those later chapters do a great job in sort of connecting to some more of our our um modern um situations right and circumstances yeah. that we're experiencing right as it relates yep. to sort of immigration and the border and uh so i i appreciated that all right well you know there's so much more that we could talk about here right i think mm-hmm. we have literally only just scratched the surface of where we could go when we think about everything in this book right um but i think this is a time to shift to application mm-hmm. uh, because I do think that talking about application can speak to some of the broader themes in the book. So, okay. yeah, what do you what do you think? Where do you want to
0: start? Um, I mean, I think th- this is a different version of what I've already said, I think, earlier. But I think Vitali does a great job of outlining the kinds of proposed reforms that are consistently being discussed about policing. Yeah. Right. Um, sort of from body cameras to more training to other forms of technology and accountability in the border Um, policing chapter, he talks specifically about how much money the U S has spent on technology to patrol the border um, to like get, you know, an idea if somebody's crossing the border. If a group of people are crossing the border in a certain space. um, But then, you know, they have an alert that that happened, but there's no way to actually do anything about it. So it's like, well, Uh why did we spend millions, maybe billions of dollars on this technology? Right. Like if that's, yeah. So just, putting money down the drain um so he provides evidence for each of these reforms and how they either wouldn't be effective at all um or how their effectiveness might be so minimal as to be a giant drain on public resources that could then be used to like just you know house people who are homeless right um or develop other um sort of safety nets for people with mental illness um or social services right investment like, more in social service yeah yeah um so I think that I think that this whole book really applies to uh, and acknowledges the reforms that people are talking about, how they will, how they won't work, um, And I think ultimately leads to, if you read it and engage with it, I think it leads to a huge way to reframe ideas around our concepts of what policing is and how it's not working. Um, And I think that's, that's the main application piece for me is that like you could, you can open up a chapter in the book, think about what the, what are the modern sort of circumstances of the people who Alex Vitale is talking about in that book and and who the police are policing um, and dive into the conditions, dive into what discussed reforms of work and why those wouldn't work um, or what reforms are being discussed and why they wouldn't work. And then some, some ideas around what might work better. Yes. Um. So I think that the whole book is really application because it's, it's tying into what's currently happening, happening. It's tying into sort of ideas around reform. And then it's tying into like, these things probably won't work. This so. might
1: so what's next?
0: Yeah. yeah. And what do we actually
1: need? Right. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, I agree. He does that in every single chapter. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and and sort of in all of these various uh, forms and, and conditions of policing. And so uh, and and how all of that impacts sort of every facet of our of our country. And so, um, you know, I think a company accompanying your application is, is sort of my thoughts on application, which is how this book is just rationale after rationale for why abolition is needed right like i think that's the next step right uh in this um and sort of application of that and how i think we really need to be doing everything we can to get there um and so one of the quotes that stood out to me from alex is that he says more than anything however What we really need is to rethink the role of police in society. Mm -hmm. The origins and functions of the police are intimately tied to the management of inequalities of race and class. The suppression of workers and the tight surveillance and micromanagement of black and brown lives have always been at the center of policing. Mm -hmm. Any police reform strategy that does not address this reality is doomed to fail. We must stop looking to procedural reforms and critically evaluate the substantive outcomes of policing. We must constantly reevaluate what the police are asked to do and what impact policing has on the lives of the police. Yep. You know, and that's it, right? Like, I think that's the application work. That's a call for abolition, you know, whether or not he's using that term or not.
0: Right. And I just think that that's where we need to go. Yeah. I think, um, one of the things I'll add as I think about sort of my what I said earlier about where this book fits into sort of the constellation of ideas around abolition, yeah is that this book was written in 2017 right. And I think that if it was written and released today, I think that abolition and ideas around it would be a little bit more present. I, agree. Um, I think he was writing for um, sort of a different conversation that yeah. we we weren't having. Uh, as openly, not as many people were having ideas and conversation around about abolition, right? Like there weren't op-eds being published in the New York times about abolition. Yeah. Like, so it's, it is, it is the landscape has shifted in terms of that conversation too, from just four years ago yeah, when he did literally four it years it. ago. Yeah. So it would be
1: interesting to see sort of, or hear about what his thoughts are now in 2021. And, and certainly if he's uh, thinking about a, a second edition of this or right. sort of a, an update to it, mm-hmm. that would be, that would be fascinating. Um, all right. So with that, let's shift over to homework. Yeah. What do you propose for homework this week?
0: Um, I think my suggested homework here is to like f- find the topic that really hooks you yeah like what what is the the thing in these 10 chapters plus a conclusion that you're like oh that's that's my thing that's yeah. what energizes me to make a change in because look at what's happening like is it people with mental illness is it homelessness is it the school to prison pipeline um is it finding new ways to um you know engage with with people who are doing sex work like mm-hmm. what is it out of those 10 topics And that clearly wasn't all of them. Um, And like dive into how your city is or county or state um, is funding those things, Um, either funding them or like, you know, what are they doing to address the actual root causes? Yes. Um, You know, how are schools being managed? Are your school budgets being consistently defunded or cut in your district? Uh, What are resources for Available for people with mental illness, are resources readily available or do you have to be arrested first to access Mm. those? Um, Are there homeless outreach programs that are available to people? Um, Are police targeting and surveilling political activities or religious groups near you? Mm. Um, And so how can we sort of collectively or you individually, like whatever, how can we make noise about these things um, and and making them different? Um, Whether that's, you know, in your local uh, town hall meeting yep. um or your city council like whatever your however your local government might be organized that's the place to start um i think making noise about these things um is that like local you know yeah that's okay where we start okay make noise i like yeah. that absolutely make some noise,
1: make some noise about mm-hmm. it right because this is important stuff right and it again speaks to this notion of you know how we are all going to be free right and how we're yep. all going to have this liberation and so that's that's uh that's incredible homework my friend mm-hmm. uh so if it's okay with you uh thanks for sharing your homework with me this week <laughs> yeah yeah you're welcome <laughs> yeah
0: uh-huh. sometimes i write things down well on syllabi yeah um, uh, i'll just say that's what that is yeah. perfect i'm gonna steal it folks if you couldn't uh, if you didn't pick up what i was putting down there all right aaron
1: my friend you are up next indeed what are you bringing to the table in our next episode
0: well, I think we should talk about the new conservative media boogeyman. The boogeyman? The boogeyman. Critical race theory. Ah. Um, I've got a couple of articles to bring to the table for this discussion. Um, the first is The War on Critical Race Theory from the Boston Globe by Adam Theo Goldberg. Uh, and The second is The GOP's Critical Race Theory Obsession from the Atlantic by Adam Harris. Um, You know, this has been in the news a lot lately, so I'm sure a few other things will come up as well as we prepare for next week's conversation. Um, You know, there's already a few videos in my mind uh, that I've seen pop up. that I haven't finished watching yet from Mark Lamont Hill, who has interviewed different people um, that we could also probably talk about. Um, But, yeah, I you know, I think this is a a great conversation for us to to have and and talk about um, and critique this like kind of conservative bias and and like boogeymanization if you know, <laughs> you know if i could be so bold as to create a term did you right just here. coin a term on the um, show? Yeah, boogeymanization yeah. um and it's not about dancing uh-huh. <laughs> um but yeah it, you know it's also if you ask any of these people who are so are against what critical race theory is none of them can name anything about it or name a tenant about it or so it's like How about um, it yeah you know I think I've said this before maybe not on the podcast but you know in real life somewhere. <laughs> um this is also real life but um I think that it's really just a it's another reaction to what 1619 like to the yes. 1619 project right like it's yes. growing out of that um kind of uh it, just in a different way like they found another term another right. label another theory to that latch they can then latch on to an attack that isn't saying specifically 1619 cuz they want to 1619 would probably fall into any kind of restrictions around teaching things like this, but um, it would cover then more things like, I don't know, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, because of how they're writing this legislation. Anyway, we should talk about that. So we're going to next week. Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Uh, Well, the other thing I'm sort of struck by by this is I guess you have to be a um, person named Adam to write articles about. Critical yeah. race theory. Uh, yeah. That's kind of funny. But, yeah, it's, you know, critical race theory is definitely just this huge bugaboo these days, mm-hmm. right? So uh, I'm definitely looking forward to checking all of those sort of articles and media you're going to send my way and yeah. and and for us to talk about it next week. So that's awesome. All right. So with that, we want to thank you for joining us today and for listening to Interdependent Study. You know what we want you to do, but in case you forgot, it has been a couple of weeks. Please (laughs) follow, leave a rating and review, share our podcast with the people in your life, follow us on social media and new here. You can sign up for our email list to get notified about new things we've got going on behind the scenes. That would be awesome.
0: Yes. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening, for being here with us week in, week out, even when we take breaks Uh, and remember, it's not about us, but it is about us and we'll talk to you next week.